The Supreme Court's recent decision, which ended race-based admissions policies, sent shockwaves throughout the country. On this episode, how that decision is galvanizing a new generation of student organizers, advocating for policy change in schools, universities, and legislatures. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It wasn't until I was in graduate school at UC Santa Barbara, working with first-generation families and students, that I realized that many capable young people, mostly youth of color, never benefit from access to higher education. I was naive to think that access to higher education is a universal right in the United States. Well, it's not. And the research backs that up. Yet higher education continues to be the main pathway to economic and social mobility, in the US. The hurdles in the way of education opportunity are structural and systemic, preventing students from being eligible for college, graduating from college, and sometimes saddled with debt. The topics we've raised in earlier episodes around housing, segregation, equitable funding, just to name a few, can have a huge effect on the final act of education, college. They have to be areas of focus if we are serious about diversifying our college campuses, workforce, and the power structures of our democracy. One student organizer got his start advocating for expanding curricula as a high schooler in Frisco, Texas, at the State House in Austin, and today is helping lead a fight for making Harvard University a blueprint for opportunity. His name is Kashish Bastola. This sophomore recently wrote an opinion piece for Time Magazine, arguing Harvard's diversity problem goes deeper than race. Hello, my name is Kashish Bastola. I am a rising sophomore at Harvard College. I'm a student organizer, been advocating for education equity and education justice since my sophomore year of high school. Nothing makes me more excited than bringing students together, building student power, bringing whatever community I'm a part of together for the sake of a common interest. Why is that exciting to you, Kashish? Yeah, I think the reason why I get excited to go to school, whether it was like waking up every morning and going to high school or, you know, applying to college and figuring out that college would be the right next step for me is because When I go to school, I do feel like I'm blueprinting the world that I will be living in after I graduate and the world that my children will be living in and all future generations will be living in. I really do see schools as being those powerful places where we can blueprint for the future and where we can mobilize our thoughts and our energy into action before We step out into, I guess, into the world outside of our educational institutions. So I think that belief is really what energizes not just me every day to go to school and to be involved 
mm-hmm. in my campus community, but also it fuels my belief in education, mm-hmm. in K through 12 education, in higher education. I think all levels of education play a role in shaping tomorrow. So you're at, at Harvard, a place that has been in the news recently. When I think about the phrase blueprint, Harvard has been a blueprint, not always in a forward thinking way. In fact, it's often been an institution to reinforce existing norms, inequities, also has done some really amazing things historically. So what does that blueprinting mean for you now for Harvard University as a student? Well, I think Harvard was founded and for the several centuries that it Mm -hmm. has existed, it has understood the role that it plays in our democracy. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harvard appears in, you know, the Massachusetts Constitution, and it is deeply embedded with the structures that we live under today. So I think the aspiration of Harvard as an institution of higher education Mm -hmm. has always existed. I don't think the university has always lived up to that aspiration. So I see my affiliation with the university as one that is seeking to, I guess, jolt the university Mm -hmm. into understanding its moral obligation to really expand opportunity and to really make opportunity available in every sphere of our, of our nation. I know that when we achieve that, then we will really see the fruits that come from strong institutions of education and learning in this country. Mm-hmm. And Harvard, as the oldest institution of higher education in this country, I think can be a model for that. But I also think that another big part of my affiliation with Harvard is also understanding that Harvard is just one piece of a larger puzzle. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote. I made this podcast to further the conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a parent, a teacher. Maybe you make policy at the state level, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going, please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait podcast is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do that now. Rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On a previous episode, we talked about the challenges of integrating K-12 schools as the policy issue of our time, but we spoke too soon. The Supreme Court's decision in question reminded us how diversifying college campuses can yield major benefits for all students. What benefits, you ask? Higher levels of social, emotional, and cognitive skills, including critical thinking and problem solving. Employers see the benefits too. In one study, Of major employers, 96% said it's very important that employees be comfortable working with colleagues, customers, or clients from diverse cultural backgrounds. And then there's a general moral imperative. Kashish sees the battles for tackling systemic racism in K-12 schools as central to a larger battle. 
a battle for a multiracial democracy that extends through higher education. But admissions decisions and policies are just one piece of the puzzle. Taken together, every piece of the puzzle matters if we want to move beyond the unequal social patterns we see today. As a student organizer and activist, you became deeply involved, and you've even written in Time Magazine recently about race-conscious admissions decisions in, in the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and even the role of, of young people in, in these decisions, and that the composition of universities and what, what it means for our society. But what brought you to this space where you sit today? In high school, a lot of the work that I was doing surrounded my school board, right? It was hyper-local work of fighting to expand our curriculum, our reading lists, the hiring of teachers to match the backgrounds of our many students, electing school board members who had priority of advancing public education rather than trying to tear it down in our district. And it may not seem like a clear jump from those struggles in a K-12 public education system to fighting for race consciousness at a school that barely anyone will ever have the chance of even dreaming Mm. of going to at Harvard. I think, though, there is a link that I found, which is that it's important for students, no matter where you're learning, to feel affirmed in the place that you're going to school, but also that it's important for students of every zip code in this country to have the bare minimum Mm -hmm. resources at your school to even dream and to even visualize a future for yourself. And that that's kind of what has fueled my work in defending race conscious admissions, but also my work in understanding that the way that Harvard and other elite institutions of higher education, although their, you know, values of race consciousness are commendable, they really we're not working towards a future where affirmative action mm-hmm. could go away. And these admissions programs have never been perfect. I started thinking about affirmative action and I guess the role that, you know, race should play in admissions when I was in high school mm-hmm. in Texas, when the Fisher v. University of Texas at Austin cases more fresh. And it was then that I was like, whoa, this is a real issue. But the real thing that really got me involved was that the legal strategist who was behind that case, Ed Bloom, Mm -hmm. had afterwards, after that case, had announced that he was in search for Asian American plaintiffs. And Mm. throughout the trajectory of my education, ever since the beginning of high school, Asian Americans have slowly emerged into the very center of this conversation Mm -hmm. of diversity in higher education, which to me is so bizarre because I would have never, I think my freshman, high school freshman self would have never really seen this coming. Mm. But now we're in a country where the Supreme Court has found Asian American discrimination because Mm -hmm. of a practice that was meant to further racial justice in higher education, further opportunity for many minority communities in education, including the Asian American community. Right. And it's the most visible form to me of the way that not just minority communities in this country have been divided, but 
Americans in general have become so divided. And that's kind of mm. what I wrote my op-ed about in Time Magazine is this really does affect every tier, every aspect of our society. And we really all need to be coming together to really reflect on the wedge that this ruling will create in attacking further programs, programs outside the scope of affirmative action, but that have the same sentiment of giving a leg up to those who need it most and of providing an expanding opportunity in our multiracial democracy. So that's, mm. it really all does come together. All of my work does. The elite who are driving policy in this country are often the same people who have access to the most selective universities, social circles, and capital. But as Kashish sees it, it doesn't have to stay that way. And slowly but surely, the landscape is changing. So we're going to make a jump here, Kashish. So this is a podcast built on a, a book, Our Children Can't Wait, which is about policy and intersectional ways of thinking about policy. You talk about legacy admissions. What does that mean in terms of policy, in terms of who's in power, and really the, the functions of, of our democracy? I hear you making all these connections in your mind through your lived experience, but also now you're an expert <laughs> on admissions at elite universities, among other things. But what are those connections, again, between legacy admissions, even legacy in terms of policy and power? Yeah, I mean, I think... There is a clear role that higher education plays in producing an elite in our government, in our military, in our industry, every sector of America. There is a pipeline. There is likely a pipeline with higher education, especially elite institutions of higher education. So when we are thinking about affirmative action programs, legacy admissions, which favor white and wealthy applicants, white and wealthy families, affluent, affluent families, suburban families. We really need to seriously interrogate how much we're letting an aristocracy live and how much we're empowering an oligarchy and how these systems of elitism are dividing and destroying our country. The gap between the rich and the under-resourced has just grown so large that many people, most people actually, can't even understand what resources they're being denied. And as someone who has been given the opportunity to study in various different places, including Harvard, and see what people back home would never even have you know, couldn't even imagine themselves doing. There's a lot to think about when it comes to this concept of legacy, of a generational transmission of opportunity mm. and privilege and power that is eroding the what we value as democracy and what we value as the republic that is America. So Kashish, let's go from this big abstract concept of eroding our democracy back to your your hometown. Tell us more. Where, where did you grow up? Where did these ideas start start germinating that now might seem crystal clear, but maybe <laughs> growing up, you're still trying to make sense of it? Yeah. I mean, I'll start from the very beginning. So in 1999, my parents came to this country and they came on a tourist visa, which ended up becoming a student visa for my mother who was able to stay in this country and have legal status here as an immigrant 
you know, by being sponsored by Community College in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm. And that's where I was born in 2004. Mm. So my very presence in this country is because of the educational opportunities that were extended to my immigrant mother. Wow. And that is the basis through which my family was able to have legal status here, through which I was born. So just starting from that, from day one, day zero. (laughs) And then when I was very young, I moved to Chicago Mm -hmm. and grew up in the Chicago area for a little bit. And um, around middle school, I moved to Texas. And I would say most of my substantial and most formative years I spent in Texas. In Texas, I think just being able to piece together a story of America based on the many places I had been and lived, the Midwest, the South, that really galvanized my thinking Mm. when it came to building power, building unity. And the community that I'm from in Texas is, to me, a model community of what this country is. It's so diverse. I mean, I went to high school with, in a a very socioeconomically diverse high school, very racially diverse high school. I had the opportunity of interacting with people of many different backgrounds. And Mm -hmm. um, I'm also the first person from my high school to go to Harvard. And Mm. I carry that with pride because I think my community has taught me so much just growing up in Texas and growing up at a time when several culture wars had kind of plagued our school system, mm. starting with COVID-19 and trying to figure out what we're going to do with that, to the gun violence epidemic, to mm. the awakening that we had across the country to racial injustice following George Floyd's murder mm. in the summer of 2020. And figuring out how those racial injustices and inequities mapped into our school system and flowed into the hallways and classrooms Mm. of our high school and even the school board meeting room, right? And a lot of, I think, just growing up in that kind of atmosphere is what gave me a voice. You know, going through these battles with my neighbors and parents in my community who, for the most part, didn't see eye to eye with me and didn't share a vision the same vision as me, but had the same underlying hopes and beliefs of equality, I think, just a different way of getting there, um, has shaped the way that I approach advocacy and the way that I approach mobilizing my community and communities across this country. I'm grateful for the fact that I was able to to be where I was in Texas, to be of my community, because all of those things have shaped me into being the, the advocate that I am today. When you say community, because she's, let's break that down a little bit. So you talked about not seeing eye to eye with your neighbors. Could you give me some specific examples or even, you know, what, what you learned through that experience? When I think back to my years in high school, mm-hmm. I think of like the two years in a row when I was going to basically every, every school board meeting mm-hmm. and when I testified at most of these school board meetings and a few school board meetings stick out. And those are the meetings when parents and students were really at war with each other. After I testified once, and after a a friend of mine testified once, parents had physically followed us out of the meeting room Mm. to kind of like scold us. And I think the tensions there were 
so rough to work through, but they also, I mean, you know, like people think of these culture wars, culture wars as racial wars, but the truth is that there are people of all racial backgrounds on all sides. There's no mm. way that you can put anyone in any racial group into a monolith. Yep. And that's something that organizing in my school district really taught me was I had parents that looked like me coming after me mm. and scolding me for the work that I thought I was doing for my whole community. So I think I learned a lot just from those experiences of, you know, finding, of still having hope in changing minds and in understanding that people can be transformed and that people's outlooks on our society can be transformed through conversation mm -hmm. and through giving people a chance. So I, I think that's really where I learned of, you know, the spirit of bringing people in rather than pushing them away. Mm. And that has served me so well since then because I've seen that I've been able to make impacts through my interpersonal relationships with people. Mm -hmm. What were you testifying on, Kashish? You said I was testifying. Wow. I mean, I feel like I went to so many school meetings that everything's just muddled in my head. I mean, there were so many things that I would, you know, engage with in my school district. One thing that I did testify on once was advocating for student voice on my school board. And that mm. I actually went to the Texas Senate Education Committee for that to uh, to testify in support of a bill that a Texas senator had authored um, that would mandate a student representative to every single public school district in the state of Texas. Mm. You know, there were so many other things to testify on. There was the curriculum, ethnic studies curriculum mm. that a friend and I had put together and presented to the school district, to our top administrators, and that we had had several meetings about. You know, at, at the school board meetings, we would escalate and we would mobilize students to come to uh, the school board meetings to really voice our demands for ethnic studies and for those curriculum changes. Yeah, it was always a different topic. The common thread through all of it was that students were making our voices heard. We were mm. making our identities seen mm. and we were showing our decision makers how all of our experiences in school, at home, in the world, how they're all intertwined and how it's time that the school district sees us as full people capable of, you know, making decisions for our own futures and um, worthy of being heard and listened to. Thinking about just, just how much you've done in your life already, Kashish, the Texas legislature, the Harvard campus, a school board meeting in Frisco ISD in Texas. When you think about those three settings, which was the, the hardest building to enter? <laughs> I'm curious, or the, the hardest space to enter, or do you feel like there's just kind of this natural progression? Because I'm trying to think of if there's a listener, a young person, or even say an adult, sometimes folks are petrified at the idea of going into a public space, making comment for a minute, and having everybody look at you. I think the hardest space to enter was Harvard, Harvard's campus. Hmm. Harvard was and continues to be a foreign place mm. to people like me, mm. people who come from a background like mine. You know, it's been a, a year that I've studied there, but it still sometimes feels like my presence there is 
one that challenges mm. what the institution was built for and one that challenges what the student body there represents. Not to say that I'm the only one of my background or I'm, you know, the only one who's different from other students. I've met some of the most inspiring student organizers on Harvard's campus and students of all different backgrounds that I've been able to work with at Harvard's campus. But it doesn't change the fact that institutionally, Harvard is a foreign place mm. uh, to me and that I am a foreigner on Harvard's campus. Isn't every student a foreigner on that campus, Kashish? I mean, no. I think a lot of my peers are able to walk into Harvard Yard and be a part of, you know, a dynasty, the, their dynasty, their family's dynasty, receive opportunities just because they were born into it. Hmm. And people for centuries now have just comfortably taken up space at elite schools, hmm. believing that they, they're just entitled to it. And nothing has changed really over all these decades of you know, fighting for civil rights. I mean, all we've done really is diversify the elite of this country. But a multiracial aristocracy is still an aristocracy. It's more inclusive. But Harvard is still an exclusive and elitist space. That's what it's it's been built for. And many people who have criticized my thoughts and criticized what the op-ed I wrote have challenged me saying, well, if we you know, get rid of legacy, then we're going to be turning Harvard on its head. You know, what is Harvard without being an elite institution of education? Mm. But I just think that we can redefine what we mean by elite. I mean, does elite mean that we're just going to give people, you know, opportunities arbitrarily just because they were born into it? Or are we going to actually distribute opportunities in a more fair way, in a manner that embraces the values that we all have, uh, values of equality, values of fairness and justice. What you just said was pretty powerful. That question that you just posed to everybody. Yeah. What are we about? Which is kind of the fundamental question. Thank you. Yeah. But going back to the question, what space for me felt, mm -hmm. you know, the scariest walking into and which space was most comfortable walking into my school board meeting room you know, it was obviously scary. No, you know, my heart was racing every time. It never got old for me. It was, you know, every school board meeting throughout high school was scary. But I think because of the urgency of me using my voice as a student, mm. I realized that if anyone belonged in that meeting room, it was the students in there. And if we weren't going to make our voices heard, then no one would be able to advocate for our schools. Maybe our teachers could, but our teachers were burnt out. They were busy. They were not going to the school board meetings. So it really felt like it was up to the students to show up and advocate for what we've seen and what needs to be improved. And that's the same way I felt in the Texas Senate. Mm -hmm. Walking in, I was terrified. I mean, I had left my home at like 2 a.m. in the morning to get to Austin in time for the committee hearing on the bill. And I only had a very limited time to speak, so I felt all this pressure. But the fact that they had 
all had their eyes on me and that for at least a few minutes of their hearing, they had to spotlight me and the voices of millions of students in Texas that I was hoping to represent during that hearing. You know, when when I think about that, it just makes doing the work a lot easier just knowing that we belong in those spaces and that their decisions moving forward will forever be shaped by our voices. They can't unhear what we've said because if anyone in those you know, decision-making rooms is an expert on education. It is the students, it's the teachers, it's the people who are at the forefront of every single policy that's being made. They can't unhear what we've said. They can pretend like our voices don't matter and they can go out into the world and say, young people, you know, young people shouldn't be voting or young people don't know what's good for this country and, you know, they're immature or they don't know yet, wait until they grow up. I think that is so easy to say and it's so easy to publicly dismiss it but when we have come to those board meetings and those committee hearings and we've spoken the truth of our lived experiences in the classroom in the cafeteria in our libraries they're going to have to deal with the guilt especially in Texas of the guilt of uh ignoring our voices and the guilt of acting unwisely betraying the the stories that they've been told and the consequences of their actions. Kashish, you've said numerous times during our conversation today, people like me, people of my background, for the listener to understand, who may not know Kashish Bastola, who is Kashish? I'm a student. I'm a community member. And yeah, I mean, I didn't even really register how many times I've said people like me and people of my background. When I say that, I really am just speaking for young people broadly. Mm. And there's no way, again, to put young people in a monolith, yep. right? Like young people vote in diverse ways. Young people have different beliefs and thoughts on what our future should look like. But the bottom line is that we have thoughts and we have mm. opinions and that we have unique visions and ideas for our society. And they're not being heard. Our needs are not being met. And young people have for the longest time been at the backbone of all these movements, you know, of so much change. Yet, you know, we still have so many barriers when it comes to voting, when it comes to making decisions and influencing decision-making. I think that is really the community that I am constantly carrying with me is my generation, mm. is future generations. And I think the urgency has never been higher than now for young voices to be heard. But I also, when I say people of my background, I'm also talking about just regular American people, right? Like, I'm not trying to pit my generation against the generations that came before us. I I think there's there's just such a gap between what we hear in the news and what we see in our leadership and mm -hmm. the people who are living out their lives mm -hmm. every day in the backgrounds, like... I think, you know, that's the community that I'm constantly trying to represent. And those are the people that I'm trying to bring my conversations back to. I appreciate you clarifying what you mean. Because she's, last question, this is something we ask for every episode of the podcast. And it's hard to do because we've had a really good conversation. We've covered a lot. But what's the one thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation today, Kashish? There are a lot of 
points that I obviously want people to understand. And we've talked about so many different things. I mean, the most underlying thing that I want people to understand who are listening to this podcast is that the truth is easy to find when you ask the right people. And the reason why we see our democracy in peril or that we are questioning and doubting the systems that we live in now because people in this country have been lied to for so long. I think not listening to the people who are at the heart of whatever issue we're legislating or making decisions on is corruption. Mm. Not listening to young people is corruption. Mm. It is dishonesty. And I, I hope people listening to this will understand that these ideas and the dreaming, the thinking, the re-envisioning of our society, all of that work is being done by young people. And we're losing so much when we allow opportunities to engage young people in education, in leadership, in the resources that certain communities have a monopoly on, we're losing so much and that our society could be in a much better place if we treated students and young people fairly. Beautifully put, Kashish. Kashish Pastola from Birmingham, Alabama to Chicago, Illinois, Frisco, Texas, Cambridge, Massachusetts. You've made your mark everywhere you've been, everywhere you've gone, and I look forward to seeing where you go from here, Kashish. Thanks for being on the show. And I hope we get to have another conversation soon. Yeah, thank you for your interest in bringing in a student to this podcast. I think the idea behind this podcast is excellent. And I'm excited to also see who who is listening to this podcast, who <laughs> whose uh, mind is changing and what wheels turn because of the voices that you spotlight here. I feel very hopeful after this conversation. So I appreciate you spending the time with me today. Thanks, Kashish. They can't unhear what we've said. They can't pretend like our voices don't matter. Those phrases keep ringing in my head from Kashish. This is one of those full circle moments. I started my education career as a researcher, studying the unique leadership attributes of first-generation college students and the role of colleges in preparing a new generation of leaders. What I didn't understand at that time is that far too many students learn to lead because of encouragement from their K-12 teachers or mentors well before college. Students may also learn to lead despite the institutions we have in place, like universities. Also, there are countless students who are never able to lead because of the challenges outlined in this podcast and my book, Our Children Can't Wait. We spent the last 20 episodes together for season one, unpacking the book, Our Children Can't Wait. I have to admit, it's hard to move on because it feels like we're just scratching the surface of how policy can be a catalyst for transformation and justice. I'm excited to come back for more seasons. Hopefully you'll hear me on the Center for the Transformation of Schools podcast. I want to thank Elizabeth Wyndham, Jay Woodward, Julia Wyndham, Geneva Sum, and Caitlin McAloon for being an amazing team to work with to create this podcast. It's been more fun than work. Special thanks to Elizabeth and Jay for pushing me to have young leaders anchor our last few episodes 
and for producing such a high quality show. And most importantly, thank you to the thousands of listeners who have tuned into the podcast. Please be in touch and let me know what you're doing to put the ideas of our children can't wait into action. Because remember, we're all policymakers. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support for today's show is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Thank you to both organizations for believing in this podcast. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. <laughs>